God and Father, we ask that you would bless not only the reading, but the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, that we would be shaped by it. Lord, that you would speak into the parts of our heart that need to hear it desperately this morning. And Lord, that uh, forever uh, we would remember it. We praise your blessing on the word and preaching this morning in the name of Jesus. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Look at that, I didn't even have to tell you to have a seat. All right. Well, our text this morning, uh, this was just read from the book of Galatians. We're continuing on there. Uh, And our text is both fascinating and beautiful. In our text, uh, we witness a fight. Uh, And the truth is, it wasn't really much of a fight. It was actually kind of a bloodbath. Paul uh, mops the floor with Peter in this text. He, uh, Peter had uh, brought his knife to a gunfight. Um, he attempted to carry sin into a holy war, and it did not go well for him. Now, I say it's beautiful what happened in this text, not because I like fighting, okay? I don't like fighting. I am willing to fight when I need to, uh, but I prefer peace, all right? I'm not an MMA guy. I don't like watching that stuff on TV. Uh, I can't even watch brutal violence in movies. My my mind, my heart just kind of can't handle it. So in what sense is the fight in this text beautiful? It's beautiful in the same way that a man standing up for his wife is beautiful. Now, when a man stands up for his wife, that could look like MMA, right? Uh, He might have to fight off an attacker. There could be blood. Uh, Some bones could be broken, right? Right? Or maybe it's just verbal. Maybe he has to tell somebody, don't speak to my wife that way. That's inappropriate. Uh, But either way, a man uh, standing up to defend his wife is an honor to her. And it's honoring to God. uh, Because he's loving and stewarding what God has given. Um, Now in that situation, a man could walk away from defending his wife. And he could be the one with a black eye or a broken bone. uh, And yet his wife could look at him and say, I have never been more attracted to you. Why? Because she saw the depth of his love on display. Right? Uh, this kind of thing is beautiful. And not just culturally, okay? It's not because we in America love hero stories or something. Um, this is a creation thing. God created us to find this beautiful. How do we know? Because this is the pattern that Jesus taught us. Okay? Jesus died fighting for his bride and it was glorious. So fights can be good, they can be beautiful. In the past, theologians argued uh, whether war could actually be an act of love. Interesting thought. Um, And the idea was if you restrain somebody from doing evil for their good, is that loving? Well, yes, if you keep your brother back from sin, that's a loving thing to do. So they decided actually, yes, rightly understood, war could be an act of love because you're trying to restrain evil. And in our text, Paul, uh, metaphorically speaking, is going to war with Peter because he saw a serious problem and he was not going to let it go unspoken. Why? Because the bride depended on it. The Galatian church depended on it. This reminds me um, of a time when I was in seminary. 
and I learned two very difficult but very good lessons. And the lessons are, everything is connected. Everything is connected. And even great theologians disagree. That's a very hard thing to grasp because if they disagree, where's the disconnect, right? If everything's connected and they disagree, at some point you've got to wonder like, okay, well, where do we start to uh, diverge? That was very hard for me. I felt kind of schizophrenic in seminary because I have a black and white mind and if suddenly Calvin and Luther disagree, then in my mind, like the whole Reformation is blown. It just, I, I don't know what to do with it. Well, uh, it was a true lesson. Everything really is connected. What we believe is all related, okay? But it's not related like Jenga pieces, okay? Probably most of us have played Jenga. Um, you know, you got this little tower, and you try to remove pieces from it uh, and see how, uh, how many pieces you can take out, how tall you can make it without it falling over, right? Um, our beliefs don't work like that. We don't have a tower of beliefs that we can remove parts from and see if it will still stay standing. It doesn't work that way. Our beliefs are all connected. They are uh, connected like Christ's tunic. Um, if you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, he tells us that when Jesus was crucified, the soldiers there, they divided up his things among them. Uh, except, he says, for his tunic. For his tunic, they cast lots. So they rolled the dice to see who was going to get his tunic because, John tells us, his tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom, so it could not be divided. Our beliefs function like that tunic. If you uh, start pulling on a thread, eventually the whole thing does come unraveled. And we probably all had that experience too. Uh, where you're out, you notice a little thread on your shirt or something. I've got one right here. Um, and if you pull at it, uh, you end up getting a whole lot more than you bargained for. Uh, it works kind of like that. Our beliefs function like that. They're all connected. And in our text, Paul is willing to confront Peter uh, in front of everybody because he saw in Peter a dangling thread, something that could unravel the whole thing. And what was the thread that he saw? It was fear. Fear that produced hypocrisy. It was a fear that led him to reject what he knew was true. He rejected the justification of his brothers. He was afraid of what other people thought of him because he was willing to associate with bacon eaters, okay, with Gentiles. And so he rejected them. Now, I titled this sermon, uh, The Justification of Bacon, because... What we need to see is that as Christians, we are free to eat the bacon. We are also free to eat with bacon eaters, okay? We can have fellowship with people that might seem different from us. And we don't need to care what other people think about that, all right? What we are going to see in this text is through the gospel, God took Jew and Gentile and he made one new man. And that man is free from fear and he is free to eat, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to uh, set our text in the context of Galatians, um, and then I want to break it apart so that we can better understand it. We're going to talk then about the primary doctrine of justification that this text is all about, and then I'm going to make three points of application for us from the text, okay? So context, text, doctrine, application, all right? So, our context. Um, how does this text fit into the larger context of the book of Galatians? In chapter 1, if you remember, we saw Paul get mad. Paul was mad because he was planting churches, he was appointing elders through Galatia, uh, he was making disciples, and shortly after he left, uh, these what he called troublers showed up and started distorting that gospel. They were adding observance of the Jewish law to the gospel. In other words, they were saying, hey Galatians! You all can be saved, but you actually have to become a Jew first. You have to follow the law in order to be saved, okay? And what these troublers did was create a false gospel, and they convinced the Galatians that Paul was a second-class apostle, okay? Because he wasn't with Jesus. He wasn't among the 12 
okay? He, he got his gospel secondhand. He's a second-rate apostle. So Paul spends the first two chapters of the book of Galatians giving his biography to establish his apostleship, okay? He starts the book in verse 1 by saying, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's telling the Galatians, I am not a second-rate apostle. I am an apostle by the direction of God, okay? My apostleship came directly from Jesus, now, apostle uh, comes from the Greek word apostello. It means uh, I send, okay? So a, an apostle is a sent one, okay? Paul is saying, I was sent directly from Christ. I met him on the road. He gave me the gospel, and he sent me out to preach it to the Gentiles. And it was years, he says, before he went to meet the other apostles, and that's at the end of chapter 1. And he goes on in chapter 2, and he says, it was many more years, before I met them again. But when I did meet them, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They acknowledged my apostleship and our partnership in the gospel. We are equals. Now, in our text, he's demonstrating the authority that he has as an apostle, okay? He can rebuke other apostles. He has the authority to do that. And that's where our text lands us, okay? Paul the apostle is going to let Peter the apostle have it. So, let's break it apart and see how this works. In verse 11, Paul says, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Peter came to Antioch, okay? Uh, last week, uh, we read about when Paul went to Jerusalem, okay? Paul was in Peter's territory in Jerusalem. And here, Peter has taken a trip into Paul's territory, into Antioch, which is in Syria. And Paul says, he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, there's a contrast that we're going to see um, in this passage between condemnation and justification, okay? Uh, and saying that Paul was condemned, uh, sorry, that Peter was condemned, uh, Paul was not saying that Peter was going to hell, okay? Just want to clarify that. That's not what he was saying. What he means by saying that he was condemned is that Peter had done something um, demonstrably contrary to the gospel, just like when Peter denied Jesus in the Gospels, if you remember, um, Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, and at the trial, uh, that's exactly what happened. He denied him three times, the rooster crows, Jesus looks at Peter, and it says Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly because he knew what he had done. He stood condemned. He had denied his Lord, and Paul was saying he was guilty of doing the same thing here. So what did Peter do? Verse 12 for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Um, just to clarify, these men who came from James, they are not the same troublers that he talked about in chapter 1. Okay? Um, these are different. The men who came from James are Christians. They're brothers in Christ. They've come from the church in Jerusalem. Okay? Um, they are, though... <clears throat> making the same mistake as the troublers in chapter 1 uh, because of their insistence on the law, okay? But they're not the same guys. These, uh, these are Paul's brothers in Christ. So they've come from James. And you think, well, that's great, right? The apostles sent us some help. These are the guys you should want, right? Th these are brothers. Well, that's actually probably not true, um, Coming from James uh, is saying where they've come from, okay? They've come from Jerusalem. It does not necessarily mean that James himself sent them. Um, they, they came from, well, to give you an example, um, if I say, uh, I've just come from the capital, you might think I'm on capital business, um, but I may have just told you I was on vacation and I got to go see the capital, right? Um, so they've come from James, they've come from Jerusalem. It doesn't mean they were necessarily sent by him. And we get a hint of that in Acts 15. Uh, in Acts 15, there is a letter written to the Gentile believers. And uh, in that letter, um, uh, James writes, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, okay? They've come from James. James didn't give them instructions about going and doing what they did. So, yes, they're brothers in Christ. Yes, they come from the church, um, but they were not doing what they ought to have been doing. Peter, on the other hand, 
was doing right. Um, he was uh, there in Antioch. He was doing what he should have been doing. He was sitting there eating with his Gentile brothers. Okay? He was uh, caring for them. He was having fellowship with them. But when these brothers show up from Jerusalem, Peter separates himself. Uh, he, he, he gets up. He moves away. He stands back from the Gentiles because it says he was afraid. He feared the circumcision party. He was afraid the way a child is afraid in the school cafeteria. Um, if you were homeschooled, uh, you were saved from this uh, embarrassment, this experience. Um, because when you're a kid and you're in the school cafeteria, <clears throat> you have to ask yourself, where do I sit? Because I want to go sit with the cool kids over here, but I don't know if they want me to sit there but there's a seat over here, and I could go sit there. But if I sit there, are they going to judge me? The school cafeteria was a challenging place for a kid. Uh, it was for me. I remember I once had a friend. Um, his name was George. And uh, he and I got along really well. We were friends. Um, but the cool kids didn't like him very much. And truth be told, they probably didn't like me very much either, but they at least tolerated me. Um, and so I treated George very poorly. Um, when it was just him and me, we were tight, we were buddies, we're hanging out, we're playing on the playground. Um, but when the cool kids were around, I separated myself and tried to pretend I wasn't friends with George. Uh, and that's the situation that Peter was in. He's sitting with the Gentiles, and the circumcision party shows up. Uh, and I can't get it out of my head. That almost sounds like a gang name. Like the circumcision party shows up. It'd be the worst gang name in history. Like, we're the circumcision party. That's just awful. Um, but you can imagine the situation, right? Peter's there. He's eating. This group shows up, and he just kind of moonwalks away so that he can go hang with these other guys. Now, why does Paul feel the need to call him out publicly, right, to, to rebuke him in front of everybody? Like, all he did was he went and sat with some other people, right? Went and sat with his buddies. Why is that worthy of public rebuke? Well, two reasons. Number one, we see in verse 13 that it wasn't just Peter. Um, Peter led the way. The other uh, Jewish believers who were there, um, who were also eating with the Gentiles, they saw what Peter did. They separated themselves too. So that it says even Barnabas, uh, Paul's companion in ministry, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So it wasn't just Peter. And the second reason this needed public rebuke uh, was because in verse 14 it says their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. They had uh, acted contrary to the gospel publicly. They needed correction in the gospel publicly, okay? Um, so, the, again, the circumcision party, their brothers in Christ, um, uh, they lived by God's law, uh, which is good, um, but the law is about how to live, it's not about how to be saved. And these Jewish believers were treating the Gentile believers like second-class believers. At best, they're JV believers because they didn't follow the law. So, in other words, um, they were communicating that one standing in Christ is contingent on their obedience to the law. And Peter saw this group coming, and he suddenly starts questioning things. He has alarms start going off in his mind as he's looking around at these Gentiles around him, and he thinks, is that bacon on the table? Are these people mixing meat and dairy? Are they eating with unwashed hands? They're unclean, and I better separate myself, right? Uh, Peter is suddenly worried that, about the reality that what's going on right around him isn't kosher, and the kosher police have just arrived. And so he decides he needs to separate himself, uh, leave these unclean Gentiles, and go hang with his kosher, clean brothers. Now, Paul calls this hypocrisy here. Why? Because Peter knew better. Back in verse 9 of Galatians 2, Peter gives Paul the right hand of fellowship. He says, we're in this together. And he specifically sends him to the uncircumcised. Not only that, uh, the events here in Galatians uh, are taking place after Acts chapter 10. And it was in Acts chapter 10, uh, if you remember through, uh, when we went through Acts, um, Peter has a vision in Acts 10 of this sheet descending down out of heaven. 
And it's got all sorts of animals and birds and reptiles on it. And a voice speaks to Peter and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's a good kosher boy. And he says, by no means, Lord, for nothing unclean or common has, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean, he says. And the voice responds, what God has made clean, do not call common. Okay? So Peter understood from that uh, that the food was not unclean. Okay? And then right after that experience, some Gentiles show up. He comes out of his trance, these Gentiles show up, these people who should be unclean, and they say, hey, Peter, we want you to come with us. And he does. Peter got the message. The food was not unclean, and these people were not unclean. But here he is in Antioch. These bacon eaters are sitting next to him, and they probably didn't wash their hands. And now these kosher guys from Jerusalem show up, and he is ready to treat them as unclean again even though God had already told him, don't talk that way. What I've made clean, do not call common. Now, Peter may not have said this directly to those Gentiles, but his actions spoke loudly. He was, uh, he was denying what God had told him. And so going on, verse 14, Paul decides to let Peter have it. Uh, Peter standing there with these guys from Jerusalem, separated from these dirty Gentiles. And Paul says, hey, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, this is the great apostle Peter. He's the rock, and he's in the midst of all these Jewish believers. But Paul says, essentially, you live like a Gentile. Suddenly the spotlight is on. That's a, that's a big deal. If you've ever seen the movie The Sandlot, um, fun, fun movie. Um, but uh, there's a scene where the two baseball teams, the one that's in the very classy uniforms, they're the cool guys, uh, and then the one that plays in like their jeans and t-shirts because they can't afford uh, the classy stuff, uh, they have an argument, okay? And uh, the, the showstopper, the thing that stops the argument is one of the kids says uh, from, the, uh, from the Sandlot team, the uncool team, says to the cool team, you play ball like a girl. And everybody goes silent. Again, that was the, uh, the showstopper. And that's kind of what's happened here. <clears throat> Paul says to, in front of you know, these very proud Jewish people, you live like a Gentile. That's a serious thing to say. Now, unfortunately, uh, Paul does not tell us what happened after that. I'd like to know. But chances are, uh, Peter repented right then and there. Um, Maybe it wasn't right then, but we can trust that he repented because um, in Acts 15, when the church is debating this issue of Gentile inclusion, <clears throat> they're debating in Jerusalem when there are a whole lot more Jewish believers around there, so there's a whole lot more pressure, and Peter is the one there leading the charge for the inclusion of the Gentiles without being circumcised. So Peter got the point. Paul then goes on to explain why this is such a big deal. He says in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now this sounds contradictory to what Paul was just talking about. It sounds like Paul just undid all the progress he was making. Right? He rebuked Peter for treating the Gentiles like sinners. And now Paul says, we're Jews and not Gentile sinners. So what's Paul doing? Is he separating himself from the Gentiles now? No. Paul was actually saying something true. The difference here between the Jew and the Gentile is one had the law and was trying to keep it, and the other didn't, okay? The Jews had God's law, and the Gentiles didn't. So the Gentiles were sinners by virtue of not keeping God's law, right? Because they didn't have it. But things don't stop there, okay? Um, not keeping the law, um, according to Paul, does make somebody uh, a sinner. But again, notice in this passage, who is the one who stood condemned? Is Peter in verse 11. Peter, the guy who's trying to be kosher suddenly, the guy who's trying to keep the law, he's the one who's there standing condemned, right? Peter the clean, Peter the kosher. He's condemned, it's not the Gentiles, 
That's very interesting. Chris actually asked me to preach on this verse because uh, I'm a Reubenson, a son of Reuben. I'm a Jew by birth and not a Gentile sinner. And yet, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The Jews had the law and were not saved by it. The Gentiles were sinners without the law and were also not outside salvation because of it. The person is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul says this three times in this verse. He says it in a way that is generally true, that is personally true, and that is universally true. Okay? He says that a, a person, just some person, a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. And then he says, we it's you and me, Peter. We have believed in Jesus to be justified, not by works of the law. And then he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter's offense was such a big deal because it was a rejection of the gospel and it was a return to the law. So, what does this passage have to teach us? Again, in verse 11, we start with condemnation. And we end here in verse 16 with justification. Now, those are legal terms, okay? Uh, to be condemned is to be found guilty. To be justified is to be declared innocent or righteous. So, to give you an example, um, my neighbor once broke into my house. Uh, they broke uh, the window that was in our back door, reached their hand in, unlocked the door, and walked in, okay? But they were justified. They were justified in doing it because my sister and I had locked ourselves out of the house, and my parents could not get home for some time. And so they gave them the green light to break that window, open the house so that we could get in, Okay? Um, justification in God's court is the same as it is in our court, okay? It is to be found innocent. It is to be righteous with respect to a crime or accusation. So my neighbor was innocent. She was righteous with respect to breaking our window. She had not sinned. <clears throat> now, uh, we know that God is the one who justifies with respect to sin, he is the one who declares someone righteous. And that happens when a person is converted, when their eyes are open and they see their need for Jesus and they trust him. Uh, when they do that, God then declares that person righteous. So when you believed in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> God justified you. He declared you innocent of sin. But here's the crazy thing. Justification in God's court does not mean guiltless. It does not mean sinless. It means God has declared you righteous. But you don't suddenly stop sinning, right, when you become a believer. Your life isn't suddenly perfect and holy, and yet, with respect to sin, God the judge declares you to be justified. You've been found innocent. How can that be? You ever wondered that? If I'm actually uh, if I'm not actually sinless, right, if I am uh, still guilty of the sin, I really did do the crime, how can God declare me innocent? That actually sounds like God is the one doing something unjust. God is suddenly the one needing justification. How can Peter go in verse 11 from being condemned to being justified in verse 16? The answer Paul gives us is by faith in Jesus Christ. Peter was guilty with respect to violating God's law. The heart of God's law is love the Lord, love your neighbor, right? Peter was rejecting the Lord and his neighbor. So, how can he be justified? By faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how does this work? I don't know if you've ever, like, struggled with this in your own mind, but I have. I've wondered, how does this happen? How does faith justify? Um... There are three components to faith, okay? You don't have to remember these. Uh, there are three components to faith. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, okay? 
Notitia ascensus fiducia. Notitia is knowledge, okay? Uh, you have to have knowledge to have faith. Do you know what you have faith in, okay? Do you have the knowledge of the thing? Do you know about Jesus? Do you know he is God the Son? Do you know of his life? Do you know of his death, his sacrifice? Uh, do you know of his resurrection? Do you have the knowledge? The second ascensus uh, is probably what it sounds like, ascent, do you give your assent? Do you believe that it's true? So you know about Jesus. Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus is true? And the third component is fiducia, which is trust. To truly have faith, you have to know about Jesus. You have to believe that his gospel is true, and you actually have to trust him with your life, in your life. Okay? It is possible to have knowledge and not believe that it's true. Okay, to not have assent, uh, that's called a secular university religion department, right? Um, it is also possible to have knowledge and assent and not trust. The book of James tells us that even the demons believe. They know who Jesus is, and they know that he's true, but they don't trust him, Okay? And this was what Peter was doing here. Peter knew the gospel. He knew it was true. He was not trusting it in this situation. His trust was in something else, and that was why he feared the circumcision party. Now, supposing you have these three components. You have the knowledge. You, have, uh, you give the assent. You believe it's true, and, uh, and you trust it. Okay? Why does that justify I realize we're just kind of digging deeper here. Why does that justify? Why can God declare you innocent, again, if you're really not actually innocent? Why does faith justify? The reason you can be justified is the law of double jeopardy. Uh, double jeopardy means that you cannot be judged, you cannot be put in jeopardy twice for the same crime, okay? You can't be judged twice for the same crime. So if you go to court... Uh, for, you know, you, the, the, you're being accused of committing some crime, you go to Judge Smith's court, and the judge renders a verdict that the prosecuting attorney does not like, that attorney cannot go up the road to Judge Miller's court and try again. It doesn't work that way, okay? Uh, say the judge has found you innocent. You cannot be tried again for the same thing, because then you could potentially be innocent and guilty at the same time for the same thing. That doesn't make any sense. So, law of double jeopardy, you can only be judged once. You cannot be judged twice for the same crime. And so the question then for Christians is, um, have we been tried? Have we been judged? If so, when? Well, remember, God has already rendered a verdict. God has declared you to be justified. Okay? When were we tried then? We were tried 2,000 years ago on the cross. Okay? Jesus Christ was tried. He was innocent of all crime, all sin, and yet he was executed as a sinner, meaning that the immortal God submitted as a man to the punishment for sin. But again, he had no sin. So, in some sense, you could, well, this is actually, you can say um, uh, that he, uh, on the cross, a crime was paid for that had not yet been committed. Okay? And so what God did was through that, he imputed onto Jesus all of our sin. Okay? All of the sins that we had uh, committed, racked up over the course of our lives, that he laid them in Christ's account. And then... He gave us Christ's righteousness, Christ's innocence. So there was an exchange that happened there. He received our sin. We received his innocence, his righteousness. And because we've received his innocence, God declares us to be innocent because our crime cannot be paid for again. It's already happened. That's what the Bible tells us. It says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God in the flesh, but he took our sin and he paid for it. And in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. He was righteous, he took our sin, 
and he gave us his righteousness. So the law of double jeopardy, excuse me, the law of double jeopardy says the judgment has happened, the crime was paid for, it cannot be paid for again. You cannot be judged for it again. Now wait a minute. That may sound pretty good, but we actually still have a problem. Are we saying that God punished an innocent man? Because that doesn't sound just. How is God justified in punishing an innocent? Two things here. Number one, he's justified because Jesus did not take your punishment the way you might think he did, okay? If you are found guilty of a crime that deserves 50 years in prison and someone walks in right at the sentencing and says, I'll serve their time, that's not actually just. The point isn't that somebody just needs to go to prison, doesn't matter who. It doesn't work that way. How much less then if your sentence is worthy of death or your crime is worthy of death? Somebody comes in and says, I'll die for them. Man, that's not just either. The point, again, is not just that somebody needs to die. That's not how it works, okay? Jesus is not your substitute like in a basketball game, okay, where you go out and he goes in, all right? No. Uh, Jesus is your substitute in a way where he goes in and he also carries you with him, okay? Paul's about to tell us at the end of this chapter here in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, okay? That means when Jesus went to the grave, when he went to the cross, he took Paul with him. He took us with him. You have already died to sin. Your punishment has already been carried out, okay? He carried you with him. And so, for that reason, God is not unjust because you actually paid for the crime, but you did it in Christ. Death is the punishment for sin. Christ had no sin. Therefore, uh, well, let me, let me say it this way. Um, Christ, um, Christ is our way to God, right? He is also our way to die and live. Christ carried you into death, and he carried you through death, and he carried you back out. That's the other reason why God is not unjust, because Christ did not stay dead. Death is the punishment for sin. Christ had no sin. And so when death took him, death broke the law. That's why the Bible says uh, death could not hold him. The chains of death encompassed Jesus and then realized, we can't hold this guy. We have no charge against him. And so de uh, death let go. Like what happened to Jonah when he was spit out of the fish? Death spit Jesus back out because it could not hold him. And it spit out all those who are united to him. So if you, by faith, you trust Jesus, God unites you to Jesus. If you are united to Jesus in his death, you are united to him also in his resurrection. That's why God can declare you innocent. He took you into death, and he also carried you back out. Jesus is the new Moses who led you out of captivity through the waters of death. He parted the way and made a way for you to come through. He is the new Noah who built an ark to carry you through the flood of judgment. Jesus died for you, but he also carried you. He carried you into death, he carried you through death, and he carried you out. That is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have already been raised with Christ. That's also why when your body dies, you will go straight to heaven. You go to be with the Lord because judgment has already happened and you were found innocent in Christ. You're united to him by faith. Now, justification uh, uh, justification happens by faith alone in Christ alone. When you have faith in Jesus, you are justified by God. And this is what Peter was rejecting. His actions communicated that justification was on the basis of law. And just as Paul was being accused in Galatia of being a second-class apostle, Peter's actions, uh, along with the Jews, communicated that they were second-class believers. 
That's a denial. It's a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of justification by faith in Christ. These Gentiles were not unclean because of what was on the table. They were clean because Christ declared it. Now, from time to time, you will probably hear us use the word reformed, okay? Um, We are a reformed church. That means we are the product of the Reformation, okay? The Reformation was a wonderful thing, uh, and and central to the Reformation was this doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The gospel hinges on it. There is no other instrument by which justification is apprehended, okay? If you have faith in Jesus Christ, God unites you to him. He declares that you are innocent, Now, um, I want to make three quick points of application here. Uh, Number one, it's this, to bend or not to bend? That is the question. To bend or not to bend? Peter saw, or sorry, Paul saw Peter's hypocrisy, okay? Peter had bent, he had cowered uh, away from what he ought to have been doing. He bent in fear. Meanwhile, Paul did not bend, he stood up to Peter, because he loved Peter and because he loved these Gentile believers. What Paul was uh, uh, willing to call Peter to, Paul was, was calling Peter to, was to bend rightly, uh, to bend the knee to Jesus, to submit to him, and then bend for these Gentiles. Jesus bent. He stooped from the heights of heaven to come down to us. And then when he was here, he bent. He knelt down to wash his dirty disciples. And we are to do likewise. We have to know when to bend in love and when not to bend, when to stand up in love. John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. If you are loving Jesus, if you are loving his people, you do not need to be afraid of what what others think, okay? This is also true when you need to repent. If you blow up at the dinner table, uh, or in the car, or wherever, you, you commit some public sin, your repentance should be like it. Your repentance should also be public. Your repentance, if you blow up at the dinner table, is to go right back to the dinner table and apologize. You say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I spoke to you that way. I'm sorry I spoke to your mom uh, that way in front of the kids. Um, that's actually, it's not about shaming somebody, okay? Somebody might think, like, oh, that's rude, like, shouldn't shame them, right? No, it's not about shaming them. It actually is a way of declaring their freedom. Uh, If their repentance is as loud as their sin, they're saying, I'm not bound by my sin. I am free in my repentance. The person who can get up and say, I'm a sinner, they're not the ones feeling bound by those chains. They're the one feeling free. So don't hold your sin tighter to your chest than you do Jesus, okay? So the application here is bend in love. Don't bend in fear. Stand up in love. Don't stand up in fear. The second application is this. To hell with the purity codes. Okay? To hell with the purity codes. Paul was very adamant that we cannot add to the gospel. And he had some really harsh words in chapter 1. You can go back and remind yourself uh, of the the condemnations that he delivered there. Okay? Um, There is nothing wrong with the law. Okay? Paul says the law is good, but the law is not the gospel, okay? This is not just a problem in Paul's day. This is a problem in our day. We all have a tendency to add to the gospel, to say true believers do this. True believers think like this. True believers volunteer in this way with this organization. They give to this thing. Perhaps we are like Peter and we try to create a tier of second-class believers. We look down on others for their choices and we feel superior. Our culture is overwhelmed with this. The purity police are everywhere. And the code, according to our culture, says, wear a mask, get vaccinated, and anyone who doesn't is unclean. We must reject the attempt by the culture to lay a purity code on the church, okay? There are people here in masks, and there are people here who are not in masks, okay? We may not look down on each other for that choice. Your standing with Jesus, your acceptance in his kingdom is determined by faith, not a mask. 
Your fellowship between each other in the gospel is determined by your faith, not your mask, your brothers and sisters. If we lose this, we are also in danger of losing the gospel. The same is true with the vaccine. You may not look down on one another as though the people who think different than you are less faithful because of it. Okay? Do not wear a mask in fear. Wear one in faith. Do not refuse a mask in fear. Refuse it in faith. Do not get a vaccine in fear. Do it in faith. Do not refuse a vaccine in fear. Do it in faith. There is no division in the church. Jew and Gentile is not a thing anymore, according to Paul, okay? And we here are not going to create a new division of vax and non-vax, of mask and non-mask. Some churches have done that, and they are in danger of losing the gospel if they haven't already. The problem is not the mask, and it is not the vaccine. The problem would not have been Peter wanting to go sit with his Jewish buddies. It's a fine thing to do to want to go sit with your friends. The problem was his rejection of his brothers, his rejection of the body of Christ for fear of what other brothers would think of him. He denied their justification because they were not like him, and that is a wicked thing to do. There are so many people telling us to reject others out of fear that they aren't clean, aren't pure. Okay? We must reject that. And actually, church, I, um, I want to commend you. Um, we have done a good job of not making people feel uncomfortable or unclean or unwelcome because they wear or don't wear a mask, because they are pro-vax or not. Okay? So I'm actually really grateful for that, and I would say keep it up. So, no purity codes, okay? Uh, Purity codes do not determine our standing with Jesus or our fellowship with each other. Mask and non-mask, we can have fellowship. Last point. Uh, The last point is this. Bring on the bacon, okay? Bring on the bacon. Christian, you are free to eat the bacon. You are free to eat with bacon eaters. God has declared all foods clean, and he has declared people clean. Today, uh, we've embraced this, right? Right? Most everybody loves bacon, right? Uh, We actually look down on the people who don't eat the bacon. Uh, The diets that are looked down upon today, uh, in the church particularly, are the vegans, the vegetarians and the like, okay? Um, And I want to give you this encouragement. If a vegan invites you over for dinner, go. Go and eat what they put in front of you and do not take a bag of bacon bits in your pocket to sprinkle out on the vegetables in order to make a point, okay? You don't need to do that. Eat what you're given and give thanks. If you were to go to a gathering of uh, a church or some organization that says, you cannot be saved unless you are a vegan, that's when you take the bacon bits, okay? And you probably bring like a huge steak with you and you sit there eating it happy right in front of them, okay? So uh, if you're a vegan, don't look down on your brothers and sisters for eating what God says they are free to eat. If they, uh, you see them there just putting away like a double bacon cheeseburger, um, you can give thanks for that too, okay? You can give thanks because God has fed them, God has declared all foods clean, and then you can give thanks for also what is on your plate. If you're strictly organic and you uh, are served something from, you know, your brother or sister that is regular, not organic, guess what? Eat it and give thanks. My wife once had a play date uh, with one of our kids with this sweet lady and her daughter, um, and this, uh, this mom surprised her little daughter um, with a special treat, a snack that she had never had before. You know what it was? It was pretzels. Now, normally this little girl ate things like carrot sticks and blueberries. And Whitley was there. She told me this afterwards. She's, she's there feeling the shame because I'm sure she was pulling out, uh, you know, uh, goldfish with food dyes in them or something and uh, fruit snacks or whatever. Um, but you know what? In that situation, same thing. You give thanks. The snacks that you feed your kids, the snacks that you eat yourself, uh, do not determine the kind of Christian that you are. Okay? So don't eat carrot sticks because you're worried that somebody will judge you if you don't. Don't feed your kids carrot sticks because you're worried that somebody will judge you if you don't. Feed your kids in faith, not fear. Feed yourself in faith, not fear. And give thanks for it, okay? So, bacon eaters, uh, carrot stick eaters, whatever, we can have fellowship together. 
Medical issues aside, right? Uh, eat and give thanks. You can have fellowship with brothers and sisters who don't do things like you. So God declared all foods clean for his new creation, right? For the new man that he created. All foods are clean in this new creation. Uh, mankind was made in the uh, likeness of God. They fell. Uh, they started following after the likeness of their father, Adam. And that was a broken creation. We have been remade. We are now in the likeness of Christ. Ephesians 2 says that uh, Jesus is the peace between Jews and Gentiles. It says that Christ made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay? There was a wall of partition in the temple that existed where Gentiles could not go past. If they did, they would receive the death penalty. Okay? Christ is saying, I broke that down. That wall doesn't exist anymore. Everybody is welcome near. Jew and Gentile can have peace because they are one. The brokenness has been healed. They have been remade in the likeness of Jesus, and they are united in one body, uh, the one body of Jesus, the church. And in the church, there is no Jew and Gentile. In the church, there is only Christian, okay? They, there is only Christ ones. Acts tells us that it was in Antioch uh, where this event happened between Paul and Peter, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Antioch was a big city and a very diverse population, and they needed some way to distinguish between groups because you had Jewish people who worshipped as Jews, Jewish people who worshipped Jesus, you had Gentiles who worshipped all sorts of different ways, and Gentiles who worshipped Jesus. And so they decided these people are going to be called Christians because they worship Christ. Broken humanity in Adam was remade into a single image in Christ, and that is what we are. We are one people. We are Christ's people. And this was Jesus' mission. His mission was to save the world, to unite all things in himself, whether Jew or Gentile, to make them into one people, Christ's people living, under, uh, the, uh, living in Christ's kingdom under the one banner that says Christ is Lord. This was the foundation for the temple city that Christ has established, and it is the city that we are getting to build. Amen? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would apply it to us. Help us to walk confidently in the sure hope of our justification that you've given to us in Christ. Thank you for the faith that you have provided to us. We love you, our Father. We thank you for our older brother Jesus who has carried us into death and through death and who has set us free. We delight to be your new creation. We pray for your grace to help us uh, establish uh, this city that you are building in our midst. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.